I'm Cutter Calloway, and today we're breaking the marriage idol with Andy Crouch. Trust behind a sorry Mother manipulated honey Andy is an author, speaker, musician, and partner for theology and culture at Praxis. Shake your feet while you sit and fit all your dreams. When I first reached out to you and said, Hey, would you want to talk to me about this new book I've got coming out? Um, you know, you're a kind human being. And so you, your response was, This is such an important topic. That could have just been Andy being kind, um, or it could have been you actually saw something in the the description or the title or something that that triggered something in your mind to say, oh yeah, this is a conversation we need to have. So I guess my opening question is just why? Like what what is why is this something that the community of faith, the people of God needs to be talking about in your mind? Oh, there are so many reasons. Um, I will say, first of all, it's been a, a personal um preoccupation of mine since actually around the time I got married, strangely enough, um, which was 20 mm -hmm. plus years ago. And, and among other things, uh, the reason it became a preoccupation was because of my living situation at the time. I was living uh, for several years with four or five, depending on the year, other men, uh, young men, uh, none of us married, um, but living in an, in an economic community in a household that we all shared everything in common. So um, including our budget and our income and our expenses. Uh, and then when I did get married and a couple of others of us actually got married around the same time, my wife and I continued to live with other people um, hmm. uh, in a household for about four more years before we moved into a, a place of our own with our small children. Um, and that, um, you know, that somewhat unconventional <laughs> living arrangement got yeah, me thinking yeah. a lot about this biblical idea of the household, um, which yeah. is, you know, in your book, of course, you talk about in a way, the way Bible, the Bible often um, refers to marriage is, is really metaphorical. Like it uses marriage as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one of the sort of emanations of marriage is this ancient idea of the household that is bigger than a yeah. married couple or even the married couple and their children but is this kind of set or web of relationships of interdependence um, that was just constitutive of, in different ways, the ancient Near Eastern world and the Greco-Roman world. Hmm. And we were living in households where it wasn't just yeah. the two of us. It wasn't just the two of us and our progeny. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> us and, and well, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Um, and trying to do that in a serious way, not just like, well, we're roommates for economic reasons, yeah. Um, but we're doing this for, um, because we want to live out that biblical vision. Um, so that was, that's just like personal history, um, yeah. that early on and well, and then when you start trying to do that, you realize <laughs> it's very architecturally difficult Yeah. because yeah. I will say, um, the first year of living uh, in a household, um, the first year we were married was, not a good idea. It, um, <laughs> it didn't, it was not healthy for our, the relationship that my wife and I had to form, which also you talk about so much in the book about, I mean, this is not at all just about sex, this relationship. It's about forgiveness. It's about uh, yeah. all yeah. these things. And all of that was kind of complicated by having mm. 
architecture that didn't really give us a way to just be, uh, well, to become one flesh, which I think is a, a yeah. biblical way of talking about what we were trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and then you realize, especially when you start having children, there's so few places where you can live as a household with other people. It's just yeah. not well designed for it. And in fact, we've ended up for 15 years now in a single family home that we bought when my wife took her current job 15 years ago that just would make it extremely awkward to live this way. So we've lived the kind of mm -hmm. middle class standard little dream, two children, mother and father, um, on a plot of land. And all the while felt like in many ways we'd rather be doing something else, but it's so hard to, to actually build that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're, when you say architecture, you mean the actual physical space. And did you also, you know, so if you're describing that, and of course, I didn't know any of this about your, your background, so this is fascinating. Um, did you also encounter, um, let's say, the sort of the architecture of our imaginations in the church of people saying huh. that's huh. weird or odd or what are you what are you doing or, you know, um, or even the like naysayers who said, ah, oh, see, we told you it would never work. You you being newly married and living <laughs> with other people. What what was that sort of narrative like <laughs> that you faced? Yeah, it's interesting. So we were in Boston, Massachusetts, um, which is not a place where the church has a well-developed um uh, it has a lot of cultural power, let's say. And, and it's also a place of a lot of, uh, freedom and innovation, just kind of culturally in the, in the city in Cambridge specifically where we were. So to be honest, we didn't encounter much of that. I mean, part of, as I read your book, I was reminded of the power of kind of evangelical yeah. culture in places where the church has been, has been able to kind of create a whole cultural world yeah. around it, a kind of Christendom style world. And, and candidly, that didn't exist mm -hmm. in New England in the 1990s, still doesn't exist, probably never will <laughs> exist, <laughs> and, and will no longer exist in yeah. most of the country soon. Um, so I don't know that we encountered a lot of resistance. I think actually people were pretty intrigued yeah. by it, uh, both our, whether they were church friends or not church friends. Um, though it's certainly, it was a definitely a minority choice. Yeah. Well, so now it was interesting though, I'd, you know, if it's a sort of non or, um, sort of clean, I don't clean is not the right word, but not overly, uh, controlled by this sort of evangelical subculture, but then you were the editor of an unnamed, uh, sort of quintessentially evangelical publication. It's not like uh, a secret or something um, I'm ashamed oh, of. Oh, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm trying to, I, I don't, I guess I don't want to like blame it for this question, yeah, in other words. Right, right. Um, right so Christianity yeah. Today, I, I think is a great publication, Does but, but both its constituency and then some of its authors, you know, whatnot, really in many ways represent um, what evangelicalism is in the United States at whatever time you kind of go there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, for sure. so obviously you are conversant with this group of oh, folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you were going to imagine for us that constituency, like put yourself back in the editorial um, position, yeah, yeah. what what do you think is then that the hurdle between um, that sort uh, of mindset and then what you're describing uh, in terms of a robust, um, even architecture, but a community that's that's living together in that way? Well, I think the the fundamental hurdle is hmm, that's a that's a really interesting question. It's it's uh, it's an unexamined culture with some very deep grooves that that steers people in certain imaginative ways, and and I experienced this. I would say in some ways less because I was on the team at CT uh, per se, CT Magazine. 
and more because of where CT is located. So it's hmm. CT is has for many years been headquartered um, in Carroll Stream, Illinois, which is one town north of the town of Wheaton, Illinois, hmm. which is a, a historically significant place for kind of Northern American evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, Home Wheaton of College, God. Well, <laughs> in many ways, that's no longer true yeah. as, as like, there's no longer a single center in the way mm. that at one time I think Wheaton was that center. But it, it still is a place where not only is faith, I mean, you walk into any coffee shop and there are people having Bible studies and, you know, it's partly just because of the concentration of Christian institutions like Wheaton. And, and but it's also just in the in the mix yeah. uh, in that in that particular area and to some extent that whole region. Um, and, and what I experienced commuting, uh, to Wheaton as I did for 12 years from, uh, the Northeast, from, uh, Philadelphia, where we live is how, um, how comprehensive the cultural, uh, sort of, well, architecture was Mm. like how much it gave people a map or a script, um, for, for their lives. Not so often in my experience, and you talk about this in the book, directly like spelled out. I mean, there are moments when it's spelled out or certain books come out or whatever that have a lot of influence, but it was much more just like look around at the models and they, they had a very, they had a very particular pattern. And that really, for all kinds of reasons, wasn't the case when we were young adults living in Cambridge and and even my own kids, having grown up in a very secular part of the Philadelphia uh, region, I mean, they just, they don't encounter that. I mean, they, yeah. they're m- much more likely to be formed by Taylor Swift than by, <laughs> you know, uh, the pure, the ring thing, whatever yeah, that is. Yeah. Like, I, I hardly know what that is, yeah. but I know it's a big deal. And you could feel that in a place like Wheaton in a way that I had never felt, hmm. even in the church in other places. Hmm. So it, it feels more regional and... Yeah large-scale cultural than it does actually specifically church-related, yeah, if yeah. that makes sense. No, no, that's a good point. Um, one thing that that I think, and again, this is a bit of an extrapolation, but um, just statistically, I think it holds up, at least in Protestant U.S. churches, is is um, the sort of symbol of the, the, the senior leadership being almost exclusively yeah. married. Um, now, yep. your last couple of books I find interesting that uh, you, you uh, Playing God and Strong and Weak, I, actually, I don't know which one was older or newer, um, but both yeah, of they them. they came out in that order. Oh, they did. Yeah. Okay. So, but both of them, and maybe one is sort of the res- the answer to the question you raised in the first one. Um, but they're both dealing with uh, leadership and power, right? So that, yeah. um, and and specifically that um, you can lead in ways that sort of are idolatrous and lead to various injustices, um, yeah. and you can lead in ways that steward the power you have to lead to flourishing for people. So if coming out of those sort of uh, concepts and we think about the power that married pastors have over our, huh. our various communities, what huh. what does playing God look like for leaders that are hoping <laughs> to lead to flourishing, especially because half of their communities are single or not married not or married. are no longer married right. or whatnot? How, what, yes. what do you imagine that looks like there? This is something, honestly, that that troubles me. Um, that is, it troubles my conscience, you might say, um, because, uh, like you, I am, I am married. I'm extremely grateful to be married. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. uh, don't regret being married. Yes, let the record show for both of us. I, we, <laughs> I am, you know, kind of inadvertently, uh, whenever I show up as a leader, um, I add to that weight mm-hmm. of, 
uh, just pattern, the, the weight of that pattern. Um, and, and I think about a lot. Um, I think that, and it's not unlike other kinds of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to say, uh, you know, I, I think of privilege as the accumulation of past exercises of power yeah. and, and uh, the, specifically the accumulated benefits, all the things mm-hmm. that you're able to do or able to imagine or resources you can draw on because you or someone else in the past exercised power in a certain way. And, and it's not always bad uses of power. Yeah. It's often uh, actually even very healthy, maybe especially very healthy uses of power lead to privilege for the people who then benefit from it. Um but the the question with privilege always is what are you spending it on? <laughs> <laughs> and what we tend to use privilege on is spending it on reinforcing the structures of safety around us. <laughs> um, that is, we use it to make our to to create an environment in which we feel maximally at home and and often secure. More <laughs> specifically. Um, and, and so in a very simple way, when people acquire economic privilege, there's a whole industry of finan- financial advisors and, yeah. and lawyers and so forth that will help you keep that money safe, right? Mm-hmm. So that you'll be safe. And there's a much smaller industry, it does exist, but a much smaller industry that will help you actually put it at risk mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. flourishing, uh, economic mm-hmm. flourishing and, and justice, right? Um and and we know, of course, that when people acquire racial privilege, they quickly draw lines around their communities, mm-hmm. uh, it, either legal ones or or informal ones, to to just create a culturally homogenous, secure feeling environment. I think the same thing happens uh, to, I mean, especially in the evangelical context, and specifically married men, who who without even asking for it, by virtue of being married, often are given a kind of trust and mm-hmm. for really quite uh, foolish reasons, probably. Um, But what do we do? Well, uh, well, there's a couple things that go on. One is simply you want to be with people who are like you and Hmm. share your world. One of the things that, talk about cultural, like, um, discoveries. (laughs) (laughs) When I started, when I left the Northeastern U.S., where I had become a Christian, where all my cultural formation was, and I started traveling more broadly, and especially in Christian circles, whether in the South or the Midwest, to some extent the West Coast, but more conservative circles, more conservative Christian circles. It's amazing how early in the conversation uh, of getting to know someone, someone asks, so are you married? <laughs> and yeah. then they ask, so do you have kids? Mm-hmm. And you have this wonderful conversation about your spouse and, and your children. I I want to say that is cultural because mm. in the Northeast, that is like 20th on the list of things yeah. that we ask yeah. each other at parties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas w- when I'm sitting at a, a little banquet for some Christian organization um, and getting to know people, that's like within the first three right. questions. Yeah. yeah. Out here on, on the West Coast too, it's kind of similar where it's a question, but it's a question of shock. Like you're married. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, how countercultural of you! Yeah, wow, what's that like? <laughs> well, indeed. So, anyway, uh, all that's to say, like that's a comfortable conversation for me mm-hmm, to have. Mm-hmm, I love mm-hmm. talking about my wife and kids, yeah. um, and and it can very quickly become. You know the natural way that I bond with people, yeah. with other men, is is through this you know ser- kind of a rehearsed series of interactions about mm-hmm. our marriages, our our if our parenthood. I think, by the way, uh, it is you do sometimes meet men in leadership who are not uh, who 
who are married without children, but it's amazing how often having yeah. children is also part of it. Yeah. Oh, the other thing <laughs> I said, we use our privilege to make ourselves feel more secure. So one kind of security is, uh, I, I just have something to talk about with the people who are yeah. my peers. And why would I enter into a relationship with someone who I have to have some other kind of conversation with that's maybe I'm not as familiar with. The other thing is um, the discomfort of partnerships with women who have power yeah. and who are in their own right, um, excellent, mm -hmm. uh, attractive uh, for all the right reasons, like because they're people of great substance as um, and and great capacities, great emotional intelligence, great uh, cog you know cognitive capacities, like and and when you meet people like that, you are naturally attracted to them. Mm -hmm. And that is a complicating reality when you're married. Um, and that's uncomfortable for men. And so why not just get rid of that? Of course, in a totally subconscious way without ever putting it this way, yeah. <laughs> by surrounding ourselves only with people who already, who are fellow men who are already married. And we can just keep that essentially temptation of inappropriate intimacy at a distance in our, in our peer relationships. Hmm. And that's what we do with the privilege of being married men, um, uh, because we can uh, in in this little corner of the world that we call Christendom. Now, what should we do? What should you do with privilege? You should spend it uh, right. for flourishing, which means you put it at risk in various ways, and you put it at the disposal of people who don't have it, yeah. because they actually have gifts, just like privilege has unlocked your gifts, has given you a chance to flourish. Your privilege can give other people a chance to flourish. And so ideally what we would do is actually be cutting across all this um, in terms of uh, who do we who do we go on vacation with? Who do we um, you know ask to teach? Who do we uh, who do we tell people we're learning from? Um, who do we introduce to other people as, as a potential leader that we would actually be actively like redeploying that um, all that whatever capital we have uh, on behalf of people who who don't have access to that. Yeah. But that's that's an uncomfortable thing to yeah. do. Well, and and especially because it feels so out of our control <laughs> and and feels like it opens us up to the unexpected risk of, you know, who knows what. Um, and I see that so often in, in, in at least the thing that I raised, I raised a couple of like practical things that churches could do. Um, and again, I was, I was thinking more in terms of structure of architecture of that's how we organize the church of saying, you know, it goes down to the level of, of hiring committees and who we bring in for interviews and this sort of thing. Um, yes. So I name a few of these practical things, but so much of church life really does come down to those pragmatics. So I wonder if now that, huh. you know, you having read the book and some of my ideas that I kind of say, hey, what about this, this and this? Is there anything where you go, well, that's a nice idea, but that's just not going to work. Like, <laughs> I just, I know, I know Christians, I know this community, I know these individual churches too well. That's just, that's impractical or it's not realistic. Um, or, so I guess the question is that that balance between sort of aspirational goals and then what's actually going to be uh, meaning, we can meaningfully adopt into our practices in some way without feeling frustrated that we're not realizing some, you know, ideal. Huh. <laughs> well, I... I'm such an idealist. I don't know that I had that reaction. I mean, I tend to feel like, oh, we can be way more radical oh, than, great, great, than good. we think. So I didn't, there was nowhere on that front that I was reading your book and thinking, oh, this is a bridge too far. or This is unrealistic. I mean, um, quite the, quite the opposite. Like I, I would so now it's, it's hard to get there because yeah, yeah. it, 
you're cutting, like you've been driving in these ruts and you're, you're suddenly deciding to drive across the ruts. It's like, you're, you know, you're gonna, it's going to feel like a washboard, you yeah. know? Um, and it's going to be continual, like continual just sort of um, bumps and, and uh, you know, <laughs> jittering and... Yeah. Yeah. And disruption to the way we do things, but but of course the flip side of that is that's where creativity happens, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. That's where discovery happens. I mean, let me give an example if I can. That um, I mean, just I, I feel like whenever I talk about things I've done, it feels like it's potentially self-serving <laughs> or, or whatever. But it's just what I've done. It's what I've tried to do. Um, I wanted to take my son on a, a celebration trip uh, to celebrate his 18th birthday hmm. and we got distracted and he was 20 years old and we still hadn't done it. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I had this kind of wild idea to take him to the Christmas markets in Germany in December. You know, Germany has these amazing little crafts markets and Glühwein and yeah. sausages okay. and so forth. So I was like, and he studied German. I was like, Timothy, let's go see the Christmas markets. And then I thought, I think I should take someone else with us. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and... And I thought of my friend um, Wesley Hill, and mm -hmm. this we, this was all on Instagram, so it's not like I'm giving away some secret that we did this. Uh, and Wesley's a, a teaching New Testament at mm -hmm. uh, Trinity School for Ministry. Um, he's he's single, uh, uh, partly because he I think he would describe himself as gay, same sex attracted. Some mm -hmm. some people would say whatever, um, but he's faithfully uh, trying to live out uh, who he is uh, in his life. Um, so not married. Thus, able to go on trips at a yep. drop of a hat, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I I just had this gut feeling Wesley would love the Christmas markets in Germany. Mm -hmm. So I email him, and he's like, "This is one of the top five things I've wanted to do, like mm -hmm. on my you know bucket list, mm -hmm. is see the Christmas markets." So we all went together, and I I will say, um, I mean, it was awesome. We had a great time, mm -hmm. except that Wes got very sick for about oh. three days, but. From the blue that line. can't be helped. Yeah, I, I think I think it was one of the sausages. Actually, uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. that's even worse. Oh, it's bad. Uh, so, but we had a, a great like eight days together. But it felt, I, I don't know if the word is uh, weird isn't quite right. It just it felt unfamiliar, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I go with my wife and kids, I know I know who uses the shower when. I know. Yeah like what the pattern of life is. And mm -hmm. here I was inviting into the very intimate mm -hmm. relationship with my son, someone who I do know and, and definitely consider a friend, but, but we hadn't ever traveled together before like this. And it was, it was uh, stretching in all kinds of awesome ways. Like, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it was such a different and better trip because we did this together. Mm -hmm. um, and our friendship, of course, it, you just go to a totally different level when you travel with other people. Yeah. Um, I I want to do more things like that mm -hmm. because I think we learn things about ourselves and about God and about the world that you never learn when you're in the groove. Yeah. Um, and and so I didn't read anything in your book and think we shouldn't try that. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it'll be hard. It'll be yeah. hard for people to try this because everything is built. We we've yeah. built our world to live a certain way, and yeah. it's just it cuts against the grain every moment when you try to step out of it. Yeah, really. I mean, that op your opening sort of architecture metaphor is really spot on. I mean, it's um, what it reminds me of a little bit is uh, this documentary we screened here called "I'll Push You" um, here oh, at Fuller. Oh, I've heard and, about it, but I haven't seen um, it. Yeah, it's just, it's really great, and it's two friends. Um, one uh, lives full time in a wheelchair from a degenerative disease that he's got, and 
um, saw, I think, Rick Steves, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the pathway in uh, Spain. Um, oh, uh, the, uh, Camino de Santiago. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, he's like, oh, man, I'd, I'd just love to do that someday. And his friend's oh. like, why, why wouldn't we go? And he's like, well, I'm in a wheelchair. And he's like, I'll push you. You know, and that's the thing. Oh, but, so they do the whole trek together. And oh. what's so fascinating is, um, you know, it's just the two of them. They're best friends. They've grown up their, their whole life together. And um, all of these um, old European hotels that are not accessible, oh, okay. um, e- even just the elevators, they can't fit the wheelchair in or him, you know, like all the, and then the rooms are all really cumbersome, almost impossible. Sure. Um, and so you have all of these scenes. And, and so it's that sort of uh, rigid architecture they're dealing with, with this sort of new found or new form of relationship that, that, th- that architecture never even imagined. Yep. But what what comes out of this film, you know, a lot of it's the, you know, the um, the amazing sort of human spirit and whatnot, because they do this long journey. But but I told the, the guys, I said, you know, this is a depiction of male, intimate male friendship that I don't see and I, and I don't even personally have. Yes. Because now you have a best friend bathing his friend because he yeah. can't bathe himself, putting him to yeah. bed. I mean, like doing all these things. Yeah. And I'm like, that is the kind of intimacy that. Literally, the architecture doesn't allow um, that, wow. that, that literally, you know, and, and yet what here's what was birthed for you being willing to commit to the exhaustion and, the you know, everything that the, the uncomfortableness and all that that you're describing. Um, wow. And I think of it then back to, you know, the church, society, whatnot, if we're building <laughs> actual buildings and then, you know, sort of sociocultural architecture that really just doesn't create space for it. Part of, I guess, the challenge would be. Let's say we're the quintessential nuclear family, um, and we've have these resources. How do we reconstruct our architecture, or even just invite people into a space we know wasn't designed to hold us? Like that, that, that yes. very discomfort is what generates that kind of intimacy. Well, that's you know that's a very interesting point because I my initial reaction I think what you just said is so profound, um, and my initial thought, and this reflects a certain level of economic capacity is, you know, we just just sell the house we live in and, and like buy a house that's better suited for this. And like, we mm-hmm. might be able to do that. We could, we could do that. And I start to sort of dream about that. But I actually think the more powerful question is what would it look like to say, well, this is what we got mm-hmm. and we're going mm-hmm. to do uncomfortable things yeah. in it nonetheless. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I have two, two thoughts about that. Uh, one is, um, you, you should write another book <laughs> called Breaking the Ability Idol. Ah, that is mm-hmm, the physical mm-hmm, ability mm-hmm. idol. And then it strikes me, this could be a very long series, right? Because mm-hmm. there are all these things that are good gifts in life. Marriage is a yeah. good gift for the flourishing of the whole community. So is physical ability. So is breaking the intelligence idol yeah. breaking or the education idol, right? Oh, the, yeah. Or the college education or higher education idol. My gosh. But all these things have to be like broken apart by the gospel and reconstituted in totally different ways. Once you realize how radically God is different from what we assume when we make God in our image, because all idols are basically elevating some aspect of human experience. That is a good thing. I think all, Mm -hmm. well, first of all, all creation is good. So if you're going to make a created thing, an idol, you're going to start with something good, but it's raising it to an absolute it's investing it with hopes it will never actually fulfill. By the way, all idols also fail, which is the yeah. like Taylor Swift side of the Disney story. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And in fact, how many like Mouseketeers and other Disney oh. little girls on the Disney channel have grown yeah. up to be these pop stars who sing these, these just wrenching cynical songs, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so all idols fail. And, and actually we have this whole series of them that we thinkingly or unthinkingly build our world around like, like physical mm -hmm. ability that in fact it is a gift, but it's, it's temporary. It's not, everybody has it. And in fact, it is not the path to God. It's, it's the reverse. Mm -hmm. And th the other thing that you said is just remembering maybe the most amazing moment of my life. I mean, it's hard to pick cause there have been some pretty amazing ones, but, um, I had a dear friend, uh, here in the Philadelphia area named David Sachs, exactly my age, born the same year, uh, father of four kids, um, younger than mine, who was diagnosed with stage four cancer, um, hmm. a number in 2011. Um, and the next 15 months we accompanied David and his wife, Angie, and, and their extended family through his, uh, illness and a beautiful year where the drugs actually kind of worked and then they stopped hmm. working. And the last week of his life, um, was April of 2013, I think it was. And it was, uh, every night, uh, either I or Catherine were in their, in their bedroom. David was at this point, mostly in bed. And, um, I, I, I will say I've been married. I've been, I mean, I've been married for 20 plus years and I'm not sure anyone other than my wife and children has ever come into my bedroom. My, our master hmm. bedroom, um, with at least not while we were there, we've had guests who have stayed yeah. in. I've, I don't think I've ever, how many, how many people's bedrooms mm. have I been in? Like married couples' bedrooms. But here I was in David and Angie's bedroom as David is dying. And one night he was still slightly ambulatory. And one night he really wanted to get up and use the bathroom. And they had an ensuite uh, bathroom. And I'm there with Angie, his wife, and his, and his brother. And this is going to be a very awkward affair when... Mm when David, who really has very little capacity even to stand, uh, tries to relieve himself. And so I, I was getting ready to leave the room and Angie said, no, we want you, we want you here. Uh, hmm. just stay. And, and as she and, and his brother undertook this just extremely vulnerable, intimate act of helping him, um, get to the toilet and, and then back to the bed to be there. <laughs> it, it it was it was one of the most holy things i've ever mm. experienced um yeah. very awkward uh but yeah. not in i mean only in the anticipation and kind of in telling it but actually in the moment it, it was just like i i get to be with my friend mm. as he goes through this last human journey mm -hmm. and oh my goodness it, I, yeah. what a gift that that Angie was willing to invite me into that space. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. It just reminds me as you're saying that for some reason that, you know, and they were both naked and not ashamed, huh. you know, that, that yeah. sort of one of my points is we take that, what does it mean to be a human story um, that does, you know, our full, a fully human life is yeah. one where we can be with each other naked and unashamed. Wow. We make that about marriage right. when I think it's actually about what you're describing. It's this intimate friendship Yes. with each other and God. Um, and even back to, you know, you, I think you leapfrog for my idea appropriately, but even <laughs> I, I didn't initially think of it that way. Cause I was thinking of, you know, stewarding privilege, um, 
by building out the architecture. And then I told a story that you rightly said, oh, that's about maintaining the architecture and living with the discomfort <laughs> inside of it. <laughs> yeah. um, and 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 that is actually what I say in the book about hospitality, that, ah. that Christian hospitality is opening our the most intimate of our spaces yes. to, and I even say it could even be the hostile, but it's it's one that's going to disrupt us. Um, yeah. And I think even my sort of um, imagination of how I might steward resources or privilege or whatever usually does involve, okay, I've got my space and now I will add on to it to accommodate you <laughs> as opposed to... I, and that's not really inviting others into my right, space. Right, that's right. creating a new space that's sort of adjacent. It's space yeah. adjacent. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so even there, I stumble over those. The you know goes back to that sort of individualism, that sort of nuclear family picture. That I'm back in that same old architecture, even without knowing it. Sometimes it's amazing to me. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Um, this might be kind of a. a it either is directly connected or it's a side note because um, a lot of what you're describing is very embodied and very um, uh, on the ground, concrete, fleshy sort of stories with your, whether it's your son yeah. and, and Wesley Hill or your friend. Um, but one of the things we're encountering now um, with both in the church and society at large um, it, and uniquely when it comes to relationships, romantic relationships, et cetera, is this new wave of technology. Um, hmm. where everything's mediated in some way through uh, emerging technologies um, so that I'm, I'm trying to envision what the, the, both those stories you described um, in the sort of techno future that <laughs> is is coming at us. It is upon us. <laughs> um, yeah, that's already here. I mean, I was just at a transhumanism conference last yeah, week. And yeah. um, I mean, the, the kind of things that, yeah, already are, much less are about to happen are just mind-blowing. Um, I, I don't know if you've had any thoughts on how, especially as we think of like Christian marriage in general um, and and relationships, both amongst those who are, are married and single and as a, as a broader sort of kinship notion, um, is technology going to help us or is it going to hurt us or is it a little bit of both like everything? <laughs> Well, let's. Uh, gosh, that yeah, so much to say, uh, and I and uh, so much we don't know. I mean, we're so early yeah, yeah. in this story, like in the blink of an eye. In in historical terms, we've uh, yeah. had to suddenly contend not just with you know glowing rectangles, uh, but with the yeah. whole panoply of technological devices. Oh. Uh, uh, I mean, a hundred years, which is about how long it's been, really, is nothing in human history. So we really we don't even yeah. know where we are yet. But I, here's my bottom line. I think we're meant to live in bodies. <laughs> <laughs> and we flourish when we, when, when we live heart, soul, mind, and strength, all four. And I think the whole technological dream is built on, uh, to be slightly technical, Gnosticism, which is mm -hmm. the ancient dream that we can be liberated from material constraint. The All of modern science came out of uh, the pursuit of alchemy. And alchemy, mm -hmm. there were two quests in alchemy. Uh, one was to find the, well, it was to find a single thing, the philosopher's stone, but it had two things it would do. It would turn any metal into gold. That is, the mm -hmm. actual properties of the material world would become totally labile, totally manipulable and it would yeah. uh, prevent death it, it would uh, the person who possessed the philosopher's yeah. stone would never die and and what that's a wish for 
uh, is a wish to be able to completely transcend the material conditions of life, uh, both mm-hmm. the actual matter around us, just turn whatever you want to gold and, and our physical bodies. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes think the 21st century is going to be the first time you can actually be a, like an actualized Gnostic. <laughs> that is, it, people have had this dream all along, like way before alchemy even, right? And, I mean, Gnosticism yeah. proper maybe starts in the second century of the common era. And, uh, but it's roots are even deeper than that. But, but, you know, those, those guys who wrote about Gnosticism in like the second century, they all had toothaches. They, you know, probably they didn't have deodorant. Like they lived with the flesh in ways we can't even imagine we in the modern West, but now you can actually live the dream. And, Hmm. um, I think it's a lie. I think it, Hmm. I think Hmm. it's an, it's the ultimate idol in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do. Ironically, the ultimate idol is the dream of not being material, not having to have, yeah. have anything to do with the material. Now, well, let me put a footnote on that in a moment. But I really think the part of why I tell these stories is this is where I've found real life <laughs> is in the very <laughs> concrete, the very physical. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how I could convince someone that 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 extremely painful and in many ways, extremely awkward night with David and that whole sequence of the whole experience of watching my friend diminish and die with cancer and and to put his body in the ground uh, is the most blessed experience of my life. Uh, In some ways more than having children, though there is something about having children that it's just more extensive and and so forth. I mean, but, but man, I would not trade that blessing for anything. And it was the most physical thing I've ever been through. Now, my wife went through childbirth itself. So maybe, you know, (laughs) I don't want to discount that. Um, Let me, here's what I don't know what to do with. And it's that, what is it? Something like one out of four relationships, maybe more now. I mean, relationships that lead to marriage uh, start through online Mm -hmm. dating. Um, And here's where I think, I think technology is not terrible as a kind of facilitator of relatively trivial things. (laughs) Like meeting <laughs> someone is not the hard part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's covenanting exactly. with someone that's the hard part. Yeah. And yeah. and if we can technologically facilitate the easy stuff, I don't really have a problem with that. <laughs> but <laughs> but the the problem is we'll be very tempted. Um we'll be very tempted to use technology to replace the hard stuff. And I yeah. actually wonder if a generation from now, it will almost only be Christians that do marry. In other words, Mm -hmm. that make this, you know, Mm -hmm. using the old language of the Anglican service with my body, I the worship. Yeah. Um, I pledge myself, you know, to you body and soul. I think everyone else is going to realize if we don't have to do that, let's not like, let's find ways to be sexually satisfied that could or could not involve the person we're living with. Let's make it, you know, more manageable lengths of commitment um, let's sort of, di- I mean, part of what Taylor Swift is dealing with is, is the incredible expectations that you go into these relationships with and the other dashing yeah. of the expectations. Well, one option is just to attenuate your expectations. Like let's yep. essentially settle for mutual masturbation and companionship. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's some evidence that a lot of the culture is going to take that out uh, option. And it will yeah. be Christians who are left doing the messy bodily stuff of actually a lifelong, yeah. like embodied presence, not just with one yeah. spouse, but with one another in various ways. Yeah. Well, or what you're describing is a relationship that is 
dying together. Ah. You know, like you're you are dying with your friend oh. as opposed to just mutual self stimulation. Oh you know, it's that's a that's a different that's just a different framework. Um, yeah, I you know I, I think you could apply what you just said to all sorts of different issues too. Of of we've mistaken a tool that could be helpful for the easy stuff to to deliver us the goods of the hard stuff. So whether it's any societal issue that everyone goes on Facebook and and talks about, and then they're shocked that they can't have really constructive conversations on Facebook. And it's like, well, maybe it's good to remind people about the dog picture you took today, but, you know, um, you know, addressing, you know, systemic injustice. I don't know if it helps there. Exactly. Exactly. I I like this idea though of, of, I wonder if Christians will be the last ones to get married. I, you, you might very well be right. I've, I've been saying in these other, um, you know, the transhumanist uh, conversations I'm in, um, that in this sort of oncoming uh, sort of technological utopianism that people have, I think a new ally that I'm finding is um, the secular humanist huh, that becomes one of the Christian's greatest allies in this to say human bodies matter. Um, and whatever's going to come, huh. maybe there'll be an artificial intelligence that exceeds human intelligence. Okay, whatever. But at the end of the day, who are those people in our in our sphere that now are the allies that before perhaps were even enemies to say, hey, at the end of the day, human bodies matter and they matter ultimately, well, not ultimately, but penultimately, whatever that huh. would be. Um, and what does that look like? How do we associate them? So I, I wonder if that would be a another small, probably minority group yeah. that would be uh, interested in even a Christian formally a Christian notion of marriage uh, um, uh, in the age. Uh, to come. Maybe one last question, since we're talking future and all this other stuff. Um, a lot of what I've asked people is, one, what are sort of those uh, narratives that they inherited about marriage and singleness? And then the outgoing question has been, if you were going to be able to tell sort of this primary story about marriage and singleness that you that you hope we as the people of God tell, both to each other and then more broadly, um, how would you describe that? What is that story you want to to tell with your life, with your marriage, um, and with the work you do? Uh, well, the word that comes to mind um, is communion. Hmm. That we are made for communion. That uh, we're made for that ultimately with... <laughs> well, I mean, it's so interesting that the last... I mean, what are the great metaphors of the last days. I mean, one is a feast, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is this feast with this endless table of, of good things, um, that will give delight to the, all the senses, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, and I suppose that corresponds in a way to the, um, the just physical component pleasure that is part Mm -hmm. of of marriage and marital sexuality or sexuality generally desire. Uh, but then the other part is, of course, the other metaphor is a wedding in which mm-hmm. we are not going to be married to one person or even, I think, just to Christ in a way, but like we're going to be united with one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so what we do now is daily practice a kind of communion with one another, in, hmm. um, always more vulnerably than we would like with ev- with everyone. Hmm. Um so not in the same way with everyone. So I yeah, practice yeah. that communion differently with my wife than I do with my children, than I do with my parents, than I do with my friends. Um, and and also, I, I, I practice it differently with you than I do with Wesley Hill, because 
Wesley is mm-hmm. is a friend at a different level. You know, you're someone I have friendly regard for. <laughs> but <laughs> but when I show up with you, even if it's on you know uh, on in, in a mediated way, I feel like my calling is to open myself up to you and to share with you and even with people I don't even know who are going to listen to this as honestly and deeply as I am able and to open myself to whatever you might share. And so even in this, you know, our our relationship is, is not an intimate one. You know, I know, I know who you are. I think I could pick you out of a lineup (laughs) right? Like at this stage in in our work and life. We don't know each other. Well, Depending upon how bearded I am at <laughs> yeah, the right. time. Well, that could really yeah, confuse maybe me. You could. Yeah. I will never be bearded, yeah. I can assure you. I, I like would have totally <laughs> failed as a millennial because I cannot grow a beard. So you'll know <laughs> me. But uh, like, no matter who you are, I am meant to encounter you at a deeper level than I would naturally comfortably do <laughs> by opening myself up to you and expecting that in the encounter with you, I'll, I'll find something uh, that I need and that will image God to me and that together we can image God in the world. And that cuts across all the stages of life in which, I mean, one of the, you know, you asked at the very top of the recording, like, why did I resonate with your book? And, and to me, just one of the huge facts of life is that most of us spend most spend a great deal of our, our lives unmarried. Even those of us who will have long marriages, my wife's great grandmother is uh, still alive. She's in her nineties. Uh, her husband died 10 years ago now, and uh, they had a, a long marriage. But but if you actually add up the number of years that she spent without her husband, it's as many as with. Um, and, and this communion that we're made for is going to happen at all those stages, in all those ways. And it's a matter of just showing up and being that available to one another. Because all I got is love. See, all I got are words. Thanks again to my special guest, Andy Crouch. Follow him on social media at AHC or at AndyCrouch.com. And as always, thanks to Day Salah Thompson for providing us with these sweet musical styles.